This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, this is Hey Dude Shoes. This is an ad, but not for your ears, for your feet. Are they listening? Good. Hey Dude Shoes are the squishiest, airiest, lightest go-to shoes you'll ever have the pleasure of introducing your toes to. So light, a butterfly could steal them. So soft, kittens seethe with jealousy. So cushy, your hands will curse your feet for all the love and attention. Toes, you've hit the jackpot of comfy. Hey Dude, good to go to. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. and welcome to Fruit Loops, episode 76. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about the true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we do not hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cisgender white dudes. No, ma'am. There are no, it is true. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is the podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist. Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294 and we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. 
Join the discussion by using the hashtag Fruit Loops Pod Discussion or by joining our Facebook group. All of the footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Yeah, uh, and that includes, so our description box, uh, they like cut us, Google and all the other podcast things like cut us off. So we have a lot of information in our footnotes. And if you mm-hmm. want um, links to shout outs or um, what else do we talk about? Uh, how music, not to get murdered. How music, not to get murdered. Oh, yeah. All that stuff. Yeah. Sometimes those don't fit in our description boxes on our shows, but they're all on our website under the yep. episodes tabs. Absolutely. Um, also, also, uh, if you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App, just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or become a monthly patron through our Podbean Patron page. We also have some <laughs> merch for sale on our website. And by the way, um, there uh, 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 T Public, who does T-Public, our yeah. merch, T Public, um, is uh, about to offer face masks. And yeah. so Fruit Loops Pod Squad, if that is something you are interested in, like a Fruit Loops Pod logo face mask. Or actually anything, if you have ideas for what you would like on a face mask, um, we would like to have your ideas. Um, mm-hmm. So email them to us, post them on our Facebook group, because we can make whatever you want. Um, it doesn't yeah. have to be just our logo. Mm-hmm. If you have thought of something that you th- think would be super cool on a mask and you would wear it, uh, let us know. Yeah. You can also tweet at us. Um, I don't get down with Facebook, but I'm on oh, yeah. Twitter and Instagram. Tweet Wendy, at the Wendy. Wendy yeah. Tweet at Wendy. <laughs> Uh, Instagram at Wendy or Facebook Beth. Um, But uh, where was I? Uh, But if you can't help monetarily, no problem. You can always give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcast from. And the most important thing is that you share our podcast with your friends. So Beth, who are we talking about today? So today we're talking about Jennifer Ertman and Elizabeth Pena. Uh, two teenage girls who were murdered in Houston, Texas, by a group of teenage boys. In the group were not one, not two, but three serial killers. Yeah, and uh, this story, I thought, it's just going to be a simple case. You know, when yeah. uh, somebody suggested to it, it just suggested it to us, and I was like, oh, this will be like a quick one. We can, you know, get back to our groove, getting back in the show. But boy, oh boy, no. was there are a <laughs> lot of details in this one. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> more complicated than we thought it was going to be. So this episode might go a little long. Yeah, so please forgive us for that in advance. But in the yeah. meantime, how you doing? I'm all right. Uh, getting by. Can't complain too much. Um, I do have to remind myself to count my blessings because I know it's much harder for, for most folks out there, parents, uh, people who lost their jobs, uh, people who are having to uh, work in grocery stores and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. shout out to all y'all and we hope you are safe and well. Absolutely. I mean, every time I go to the grocery store, um, we go once we try to go once a week, once of us, right. uh, me or my husband will put gloves on their mask or whatever. And I say thank you to everybody working that I see. Like, just thank yeah. you for being here. Um, yeah, thank but, you so much. Uh, yes, thank you. And a shout out to all the essential workers out there on the front lines for us. Um, this is difficult for everybody, but I know particularly for all of you who are 
putting yourselves on the line. It's got to be really stressful. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody who's lost somebody, I've already lost, I I think I've talked about two family members, um, to people who um, are in the midst of family members suffering with this or um, who uh, are just scared of of losing family members. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is a really, really fucked up time. And, anybody listening to our voice we we just we hear you our fruitless pod thoughts and prayers are with you um and we just are grateful that you're listening to us and we hope that uh your love of true crime can take your mind off of all the fucked up shit that's going on outside right yes 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 um now we're gonna get into our listener letters Thank you so much. Oh, (laughs) okay. What do you got, Beth? Dub C. Murderino said, I'm a true crime lover and a woman of color. While I enjoy the wide variety of true crime shows, I can't help but notice there isn't many POC stories out there. So happy to have a show for us and by us. So shout out to Airhorns to you. you Thank you, Dubsy Murderino. You know that's what the the brand, the famous brand from the nineties, Fubu, is for us by us. That's what that oh, stands yeah. for. Yeah, that's right. Fubu. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, I was excited to see this. We got a five star review on iTunes by MCB98. Uh, titled Disconcerting and Hilarious. Uh, they go on to say, <laughs> Wendy and Beth do an amazing job discussing serial killers of color. Unlike many other serial killer podcasts, these ladies name and honor the victims of the crimes. They provide social and cultural context for the murders they discuss. I enjoy listening to their perspectives and nuance they bring to the topic. Hip-hop air horns to Wendy and Beth for their compassionate coverage of an often gruesome topic keep up the good work and to you i say thank you yes thank you so much yeah awesome yeah so uh <laughs> now we're gonna take a quick break and then we're gonna dive into the story when we get right back hello, hello. welcome to bsp believer skeptic podcast the podcast for two idiots debate weird phenomena i'm chris i'm the believer i'm cody i'm the skeptic we are an lgbtq paranormal comedy podcast <laughs> and this is how it works every week we pick a strange but fascinating paranormal topic such as la llorona voodoo crimes of passion empaths holiday traditions cryptids conspiracy theories incorruptibles ghosts telekinesis mind control deja vu true crime medical miracles simulation Lacra, cursed artifacts the apocalypse stigmata <sighs> all right and after presenting you with a lot of really fun information i tell you why i believe and then i debunk the crap out of it uh, of course <laughs> and along the way you might find some um really tmi information some gay humor and also some um sexual innuendos yes. so tune in have fun and bye, bye. And we're back from our break. Did you wipe your butt all the way, Beth? Just kidding. <laughs> um, so 
who are we talking about? Who's our subject today? So today is going to be a little bit different because the subject is Jennifer Ertman and Elizabeth Pena, and they're the victims of the crime, uh, two teenage girls, and they were murdered in Houston by three teenage serial killers and some other teenage boys. So we got a lot of people to talk about. Um, it's going to be a little bit different. So uh, hang on. Hang on. H. Uh, every time I hear Houston, I just want to say H-Town bitches just because I love Beyonce so much. Aww. Bow down, bitches. H-Town bitches. H-H-Town bitches. I'm so proud. Bow down, bitches. Come on. You didn't you, you didn't watch Homecoming? I, I, no, sorry. I remember I remember when the homecoming when the homecoming Coachella thing came out, you came over to my desk and I was watching it on YouTube and you were like talking to me. I was like, I'm really sorry, but I have yeah, to I'm, watch. I'm busy. I'm I'm this. watching this right now. Get the fuck out of here. Like, I know I'm at work, but I'm watching Beyonce homecoming from eight. Like she's from so I, I got a lot of things right now, so Next, uh, <laughs> so I can't talk. Get the fuck out of here. But uh, so H Town is a wonderful place. By the way, it's one of the most diverse cities in the entire United States. Um, you can get food from any ethnicity, country, or race in wow. Houston, um, which is uh, why I think it makes it such an incredible city. Um, it's also the there's also a lot of black and brown people in Houston. Um, and and by the way, more to the story, Jennifer Ertman and Elizabeth Pena are two victims, but there are actually three. And the third victim doesn't get talked about nearly enough. Um, we'll get to that later. So here we come to the stats. Okay. All right. So uh, the murders of Jennifer Louise Ertman was 14 years old and her best friend, Elizabeth Christine Pena was 16 and she was a Latinx female. They were both accosted, tortured, brutally gang raped and murdered by six gang members. In this case, we want to remember the victims names more than the names of the perps. Um, there were six males involved in the crimes. Uh, Peter Cantu, he was a Latinx male. He was the ringleader uh, and uh, one of the older gentlemen in the, bro- in the group. Uh, Jose Medellin, uh, Mexican male. Sean Dick O'Brien, was a black male, Efrain Perez, uh, Raul Villarreal, and Venicio Medellin, who was the youngest of the group, was 14 years old and related to Jose Medellin. I think they were brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a third victim who was killed before Ertman and Peña, Patricia Lourdes Lopez. Uh, she was a 27-year-old mother of two. And the murders of Jennifer Ertman and Elizabeth Pena were the 250th and 251st homicides in Houston in 1993. So now we're going to dive into the setting. Splish, splash, take us there, Beth. The setting is Houston, Texas in the 90s. Houston is the fourth largest city in the United States. It's located in southeast Texas near Galveston Bay and the Gulf of Mexico. So as I mentioned earlier, it is the birthplace of Beyonce, H-Town Bitches, uh, Paul Wall and Bun B, famous uh, rappers and musicians from Houston. Um, and recently, Houston has flooded several times due to heavy rain 
rain, tropical storms, and hurricanes like Hurricane Harvey in 2017, which was devastating, and Houston hasn't completely recovered. And most of the communities devastated by these natural disasters are poor people and people of color. Houston has been the site of numerous industrial disasters and construction accidents. After natural disasters like Harvey that lead to some toxic spills and disasters, including the 2017 Arkema plant explosion, 57% of the COVID-19 deaths in Houston have been um, Black and Brown people. And by the way, um, these environmental disasters and this pandemic are affecting poor Black and brown communities more than affluent white ones. And I just want us to notice that and consider that that is a problem. And we all need to consider that when we, you know, vote and donate money and all that stuff. Yeah. 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 So here's some history. Following the end of the war between the United States and Mexico under the Treaty of Hidalgo in 1848, the Mexican government ceded a large southwestern region to the United States. Mexican citizens living there in the area we know as California, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, and half of Colorado became naturalized U.S. citizens. And even though they were naturalized citizens, they were often treated as second-class citizens and told to go back to Mexico. Mm. Mexicans became alienated in their own homeland. Many Mexican street gang members felt that the United States stole this part of their country from their ancestors and um, still feel that way. Still feel that way. There is a word for Latinx people who are generations um, who've been here who feel like the border crossed them and this land is their land. And... um, I can't think of the word for it. And and they may not even speak any Spanish, but they feel like this is their land. And yeah, and it was stolen from them. Yes, exactly. Physical and cultural marginalization incubated street gangs of Mexican origin in Los Angeles and other Western cities. They were isolated by cultural, racial, and socioeconomic barriers enforced by ingrained prejudices of the Anglo-American community. So Cholo youth, the poorest of the poor, marginalized immigrants could not fully assimilate into Anglo culture. Being a Cholo allows them to assert a Latinx identity and then deny being embiachado or anglicized. They shape their own Cholo a derivative of the Spanish solo, meaning alone, subculture. And <laughs> every time I say the word, y'all, elbows up, side to side. Elbows up, side <laughs> to side. Like a cholo. Uh, like a cholo. Have you heard that song? Like a cholo. I have. Yeah, elbows yeah. I don't, That's the only part I've heard, though. I don't know anything about it other than like that. Like a cholo. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Okay, continue. So although Texas lacked the history of street gangs as compared to other parts of the United States, during the 1990s, the American South saw an increase in gang activity that had not been seen previously. Many street gangs in Texas have no organized command structures. Individual cliques of gangs defined by streets, parts of streets, apartment complexes, or parts of apartment complexes act as individual groups. 
By 1998, the states with the largest number of gang counties were Texas with 82, Georgia with 61, California with 50, Illinois with 42, and Florida with 40. In Houston, an area known as Swinglesville is a notorious hotspot for gangs. In the 70s, dozens of apartment complexes have been built one right next to the other to accommodate young, single, white adults who were then coming to the city. So uh, just a quick culture corner. <laughs> um, gang, the word gang is really, really scary to white people. Um, and uh, black and brown poor kids do not join gangs because they just want to kill white people and, and rob all their mm -hmm. things. They join gangs because um, their parents are working. There's a father in prison or a father um, who is, is absent due to systematic uh, social issues. And they have no as, support. Yeah. And they have no support and need to join a community in order to survive and eat and have shelter. And so right. um, when uh, I think white people hear gangs, I think they just mean it in a really negative context. But um, to the kids who are in the gangs, they had no other option. They're, they're not, right, right. they're not just out. It's not just super fun. Yeah. It's not, it's not super fun. It's, it's survival. And so I just wanted to point that out to anybody before listening. Continue. Yeah. Before we continue. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. In the eighties, a state law banned owners of apartment complexes from renting only to adults with no children and an oil bust caused Houston's economy to collapse. The young singles who lost their jobs moved away and there were no new groups of young singles arriving to replace them. Rents plummeted and poorer families began moving in. It wasn't long before the gangs also began appearing at the apartment complexes. Black gangs were formed in the mostly African-American apartment complexes at the edge of the neighborhood. And in the heart of the neighborhood were the Latinx gangs. And there was never a shortage of recruits. According to Charles Rottramel, the director of Youth Advocates, the neighborhood contained all the elements to create this huge gang culture. It was densely populated. There were at least 100,000 residents packed into the apartments. And there were no amenities for the kids because the entire community had been built for single adults. There were only a couple of schools, which immediately became overcrowded. There were only a couple of parks with no playgrounds. There were no youth athletic programs, no community centers, no Boy Scouts, no youth programs at churches. These kids were completely alienated. And the kids were alienated for the reasons other than just geography. Many fathers were absent, many of them in prison um, for reasons again, that have to do with systemic uh, issues racism, around yeah. poverty and racism. The mothers were uninvolved in their lives, either because they were working day or night for a minimum wage or because they were dealing with their own problems, um, which could have been drugs and alcohol, and they were simply too broken down. The kids just hung around. They were skipping school. They had no money or what money they had was taken away from them by other kids who also beat them up. And that's where the gangs came in. Gangs provided them with status, a sense of belonging and uh, protection. Mm hmm. 
So now we're going to dive into the early life of the people involved in this case. So Peter Anthony Cantu was born in Austin, Texas to Susie and Rudy Cantu. Uh, On May 27th in 1975, he was the third of four siblings. Susie was 15 when she met Rudy and only finished the 10th grade. Rudy worked at a job delivering office furniture. When Peter was four, the family moved to Houston. Peter had trouble speaking, and by the time he started kindergarten, he would get frustrated at his inability to communicate, and the other kids teased him. Peter was not a good student. In third grade, he had D's in almost every subject. His mother blamed it on the deaths of an aunt and a beloved grandfather. Peter had no longer wanted to talk to anyone. He backed away from the people who wanted to get close to him, and he never cried. Peter had to repeat a couple of grades, and by the fourth grade, he was an 11-year-old in a classroom full of nine-year-olds. Can you imagine? It would be really, really hard to want to even continue if you were an 11. Uh, And in a class of nine-year-olds. Nine-year-olds, yeah. Yeah. His first known crime took place on June 24th, 1986, when Peter and another boy knocked eight-year-old Darren McElroy off of his bike, and Peter rode off on it. When Darren's mother learned what happened, she called the police and then went looking for the bike herself, talking to kids in the neighborhood and offering a $10 reward to look for it. Two hours later, Peter took the bike to the McElroy's house to collect the reward. Wow. Uh, two days later, Darren's bike was stolen again, this time from McElroy's garage. Yeah, it's pretty brazen. Yeah. Three weeks later, Peter was arrested for assaulting Darren McElroy and stealing his bike, then stealing it again two days later. He was questioned in front of his parents, and after questioning, was released to his parents and referred to the county juvenile probation department. In 1988, Peter flunked out of middle school due to excessive absences, um, which isn't always the child's fault or always the parent's fault. Sometimes it has to do with mom not being able to confirm the kid can get to school because she's working or the kid is involved in some illicit activity. Like it, it could be for a number yeah, it's of reasons. hard to say. Yeah. It's hard to say why. Um, yeah. But then on July 27th, 1988, Peter got in trouble for harassing a fellow female student named Amber Law. He knocked on the door and demanded to be let inside. When she refused to let him in, he began banging on on the windows until he broke one and ran away. Amber's father went to the the Cantu's home and told Peter to stay away from their house. Peter's mother, Susie, did nothing as Peter told Amber's father that he would do whatever he wanted. Amber's father then called the police who paid Peter a visit. Peter agreed to stay away from the law's house, but the officer did not believe that Peter was sincere, and he referred the case over to the probation department. Several months later, Peter got in trouble again for assaulting a female teacher when he began shoving her and kicking her. He was expelled from the school and a police report was filed. Peter was arrested, charged, and then let go with a warning. Peter was allowed back to school for the spring semester, but he began taunting the teacher who he had assaulted. He would follow her six to eight feet behind, and when she turned around to look... He would pretend like he wasn't doing anything. Oh, boy. He would also walk by her classroom and smirk at her. Eventually, it was too much for her to take, and she transferred to a different school. 
That's pretty terrifying. Um, yeah. After the teacher left, however, he continued to have discipline problems. He was often in the principal's office. Uh, <laughs> me too. And he got in <laughs> trouble a lot for cursing, including using the N-word. Ooh, I got to say, welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. I have a real problem when um, uh, people who uh, don't have the traumatic relationship with the N-word use it. Um, and that includes, um, I, I hear a lot of um, Latinx kids use it. And if you're Afro-Latinx, totally fine. But um, personally, I have a problem with like, kids of Mexican descent using it because they hear it in music or um, just people who who have never had a, a relative strung up by a tree with people hur- hurling that insult at them using the word. Um, and so yeah. this really bothers me. But anyway, side note, uh, he, ca- he cursed at everybody, uh, the students, teachers, security guards, even the principal. The school's attempt to get his mother involved did not help. Susie Cantu always took her son's side. Cantu continued to get in trouble and cause problems with his disruptive and belligerent behavior. He threatened the life of a teacher, a security guard, and the vice principal. Oh my. He was expelled from school again and transferred to another school where he was suspended three or four times. By the time Peter was in the eighth grade, he was 15 years old. Wow. Uh, But his reading level was that of a second grader. He was diagnosed with severe conduct disorder. It was decided that he should attend an alternative school for troubled or emotionally disturbed students. Peter did a little better at the alternative school, but by the second year, he had started skipping classes and hanging out with a friend to do drugs and drink alcohol. On December 6, 1991, Peter stole a car from a hospital parking lot. Then in April of 1992, he threw a fit at his school and smashed a desk. He eventually stopped going to school at all. He got a job changing oil and started working rather than going to school. My eyes are very uh, big right now because I just want to know why. Um, (laughs) well obviously he had some emotional problems i'm not really sure what was going on but uh shit was happening there yeah there was a lot going on there on january 9th 1993 peter pulled out a knife on another boy when he bumped into the boy and the boy objected peter was charged with a felony offense of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon for that he received four years probation. He tested dirty on a urine test in February. And then in March, he was charged with attacking a man at a Burger King of all places. In April, he assaulted a man in a parking lot, but for some reason he was still out on the streets. Yeah. All these things that uh, he did, he would just get probation for, or they would just you know, uh, they they really didn't do anything. I'm not really sure why, but maybe the system was overwhelmed. Maybe they thought, yeah, they were possible. Cold. Like maybe this time, if we let yeah. him go, I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, he'll turn his life around. But yeah. yeah. So uh, the next guy we're going to talk about is Jose, who went by Joe Medellin. He was born in Mexico on March 4th, 1975. His mother, Maria, was only 15 when she gave birth to him. 
Soon came two more boys, the third named Venantia, who they called Uni, meaning junior, as he was named after his father, Venantia Sr. Uh, and that has to do with the fact that the J sound in Espanol is a Y sound. So Uni, Junior, yeah. or like a girl named Jessica would be called Jessica in Spanish. Right. So right. anyway. That's where that comes from. In 1979, Joe's father emigrated to the U.S. to find work. He eventually earned a green card and became a naturalized citizen. Joe was not brought to Houston until he was nine years old. His parents never took him through the process of becoming a naturalized citizen, though. So technically, he was an illegal immigrant. Right, but he was a kid. So, I mean, what kind of control did he have over that? Right. So he would be like DACA today. Um, right, right. No control over that. You don't even know what's going on when right. when you're a kid. Right. But the whole yeah. time, there's still this fear of La Migra can come and get us at any time. Any like, any time. Yeah. yeah. So you're yeah. like living your life, but in fear, in fear of constantly having it being disrupted. So anyway. Right, right. So Joe did very well in school. He was an honor student and he had an aptitude for math and science. He earned top honors at a science fair. He also played sports after school, football, and baseball. But in the sixth grade, something changed. His mother believed it was because she stopped being a stay-at-home mom and took on a full-time job at a cleaning service, um, which makes me sad because I, I don't think it's her fault. No. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's hard when you're a mom and yeah, and you're trying to do yeah. everything that you can for your kids. Right. And um, all you want to do is provide for them as right. best as you can. And sometimes you have to do that by not being around. Yeah. In any case, he started getting into trouble. He was suspended from school and had to start going to an alternative school when he was eventually expelled. He was allowed back to school when he started the ninth grade, but he did not stay out of trouble for long. He got in trouble for cursing at teachers and making verbal threats, fighting and threatening the lives of two vice principals. Santa Maria! <laughs> Outside of school, he was also causing trouble. He was one of the boys arrested when Peter Cantu stole the car in the hospital parking lot, and he was arrested for possession of a stolen firearm. Joe was expelled from school and sent to an alternative school again, where he did not last long. He dropped out, planned to get his GED, go back to Mexico, and join a Mexican military. Uh, but he never did. Instead, he went to work for a concrete company where he did very well and was commended for his hard work. He gave half his paycheck to his parents every week without even being asked, which is very common of black and brown Kids and people families. of immigrants. We, yeah. yeah, and families. Yeah. We we give our money to our families or send it to the countries of our origins because to help our, our relatives. Yeah, yeah, our lives are obviously better in the U.S. So here you go. So right, right, right. So the next person we're going to talk about is Sean O'Brien, who was born on April fourth, nineteen seventy-five, to nineteen-year-old Ella Louise Walker. And I have to mention that Sean O'Brien is black. I say that because when I read the name Sean O'Brien, I think of a white guy, <laughs> like Irish. I know. Me too. I knew a Sean O'Brien in high school, and he was a white <laughs> asshole. 
<laughs> I when I read that name, I, I assumed he was white, but no, he's a black guy. <laughs> so his father abandoned his mother before he was even born, and Ella and Sean lived with Ella's parents. Ella worked as a receptionist, and his mother, Donna, took care of Sean while she was at work. Sean only saw his biological father once between 1975 and 1990. That's 15 years. Awful. His father spent the majority of his time in prison for various charges, including murder. Wow. Sometime after 1976, Ella met a man who asked her to move in with him, but he did not want Sean to move in with them, too. So Ella left Sean to be raised by his grandmother, who was only too happy to do so. She loved Sean. Sean's grandmother, Donna, was not a disciplinarian. She also did not require Sean to do chores, and she pretty much let him do whatever he wanted to do because she thought he was just the the cutest thing she ever saw. <laughs> um, well, time yeah, for grandmothers, grandmothers not are to like see that. that. Yeah. yeah, I know. I'm like that too. <laughs> do whatever you want. Yeah, have some, have some candy. Yeah, you're you're so cute. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? You dumped out all the toilet paper in the toilet? Oh, well. What's that? You want me to wipe your butt even though you're five or six years old? Okay, I'll do it. What's that? (laughs) What's that? You pull out all my plants from the potters? Oh, no problem. Oh, well. (laughs) Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people, to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done. And that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. and. Give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.
Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. That's I won't true. go on anymore. That's, true. that's how I that's how I am with my grandson too. <laughs> Your grandson is pretty cute though. Yeah, he is. <laughs> <laughs> he is a little my my daughter call this is funny. <laughs> so my huh. my daughter calls him a little turtle. <laughs> Wait, tur- turd turd all turtle. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh my that is turtle. Very fun. My little turd that is adorable. I love that. Oh my god, my head's gonna explode. It's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, back to the story. Okay, okay. Sean's mother, Ella, she eventually married the man that she was living with. And Sean began acting moody, sullen, and withdrawn. Uh, you know, understandably so. Did you know one out of six couples struggle with infertility, including old Whitey and me? Seriously, that is a staggering statistic yeah. that most people don't know or aren't ready to talk about. We need good data and information about our bodies in order to have informed conversations with our doctors and make the best decisions for ourselves and our futures. Good data and information about our bodies is crucial when it comes to our body autonomies, especially in the year of our Lord 2022. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's why Modern Fertility was created. It's an easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick. Mail it in with a prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within 10 days. Traditional testing can cost over $1,000, but Modern Fertility gets you the same info at a fraction of the price. And if you go to modernfertility.com fruit, you can get $20 off your test. Also, and this is really cool, mm. if you have an HSA or an FSA, you can put those dollars towards Modern Fertility. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Now, if you want kids today, or in the future, never or are undecided. It's important to have clinically sound information about your body, which can help you make the decision that's right for you. Right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com fruit. That means your test will cost $179 instead of the hundreds or thousands it could cost at a doctor's office. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com fruit. That's modernfertility.com fruit. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. How we care for our minds affects how we experience life, so it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. There are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain, like learning a new language or taking power naps, but there's also BetterHelp Online Therapy. Now, we are huge advocates for mental health here at Fruit oh, yeah. HQ. Oh, yes. And we have both used therapy throughout our lives, including BetterHelp, and especially in these past several years to help us deal with challenging times, mm-hmm. challenging thoughts, feelings and experiences. Amen. Yes. And uh, now I had a recent, you know, conversation with my therapist. She was saying sometimes it's just good to talk and get some perspective. You don't yeah. have to go to a therapist just because stuff is wrong. So Right, right. And BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat only therapy sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And some people get really anxious about that. So Oh, yes. And it is much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash fruit. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash fruit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, he started school where he was diagnosed with a learning disability and placed in the special education program. According to the Houston School District, a psychological evaluation showed that Sean had begun to torture animals. Not a good sign. Yeah, he's angry. Mm-hmm. A freak accident, unfortunately, caused a traumatic brain injury to his grandmother, which forced Sean to go live with his mother again. 
He hadn't lived with her in seven years, and now there was a stepfather and a little one-and-a-half-year-old stepsister to deal with. Sean was used to doing whatever he wanted and getting his way with everything. But this was not to be. At his mother and stepfather's house, they did not let much slide. Sean was also resentful of his sister, who his mother doted on. He was angry that his mother had abandoned him, yet adored his little sister. Understandable. Sean began getting into fights at school. In fifth grade, he tried to commit suicide. Mm. In fifth grade. (laughs) That's nine. Yeah. He's a little kid. He tried to commit suicide by swallowing a bottle of Tylenol. It was only the first of many attempts at suicide. He failed fifth grade and had to repeat it. Ella took Sean to counseling, but unfortunately, it didn't help. Well, it was a try. Uh, In 1986, Ella left her husband after repeated arguments with and about Sean. They moved back in with Sean's grandmother. More family drama followed. Ella became pregnant again and gave birth to another boy. Sean's grandparents separated. Sean was still getting in trouble at school and was expelled after attacking a teacher. He also ended up in an alternative school. He was arrested for shoplifting. He was a frequent truant. He took a gun to school and threatened a student, then shot the gun into the air. He continued to get in trouble for fighting, and he once fondled a girl's breasts against her will on the school bus. He also got in trouble for choking another kid also on the school bus. All these to me just sound like cries for help. Yeah. I know they're awful, but they just sound like but somebody yeah, please like help he's, me. Yeah, like he's having problems. Mm-hmm. Somebody needs to intervene. Yeah. In some way, please yeah. help me. Yeah. Um, I'm struggling. Uh, in 1991, he got into an argument with his mother and punched her in the chest, sending her flying through a plate glass window. Oh, my God. She was cut up so bad. She had to be taken to the hospital by ambulance. And later that year, he was sent to juvenile deten- detention for assaulting a teacher. By 1992, he dropped out of school. So, yeah, these three boys were all having a lot of problems. Yeah, yeah. So now we're going to talk about the the victims, Jennifer Ertman and Elizabeth Pena. Mm -hmm. Jennifer Ertman, uh, 14, was the only child of Randy and Sandra Ertman. She was their miracle child. Sandra described her as sensitive, modest, and funny, and more child than teenager. She liked playing outside with the younger neighbor kids, but didn't allow her high school friends to see that side of her. She was a good girl, a straight A student who they did not really worry about because she didn't really give them any trouble. And I kind of really related to Jennifer because I was like that when I was that age. Um, I was still a a kid. I was still playing with dolls. And Mm -hmm. um, the other girls were like talking about boys. And and I just wanted to play. (laughs) Oh, that's so sweet. So I really related to Jennifer um, in that way. Look at little Beth. (laughs) i like hearing your little stories (laughs) 
So uh, as she spent more time in high school, uh, she started wearing makeup and more jewelry, but she wore a Disney goofy watch that her parents bought her for Christmas. By the way, we've been binge watching, not binge watching, but watching repeatedly a goofy movie, <laughs> which is oh, really for your kids. So, yeah, which is so funny still to this day. <laughs> anyway, uh they also bought her a pager. Oh, remember those that she wanted? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, so she could keep in touch with her friends. That and was state of the art in the early 90s. I know. And, and to people listening who may not be aware, a pager is something that people used to wear in the 90s before we had cell phones. And uh, you would call a pager and then the pager would receive your phone call through a beep and then you would be able to acknowledge that somebody was trying to get in touch with you and then you'd be able to call that number back knowing yeah that- i would have the the number on the pager yeah. that called you so you could call them back i had yeah. one that now this was more in the mid mid 90s when i got one it wasn't as early as this it's probably more like 96 Um, when I was in school and my kids were in school, whatever. (laughs) Uh So, so the teachers or whoever could, could call me if, uh, something happened to them. And uh, yeah, that was the first, first time I, I had, had a pager. How about you? Um, so my mom had a pager in like 93, 94, 95. Um, and she was a single mom at the time and, like in the summers, we didn't have anybody to watch us. So I was right. like grown up taking care Staying of home by you yourself. Yeah. yeah. And so like, my brothers are being assholes. And so I would like call my mom's <laughs> pager and uh, she, she eventually stopped answering. But uh, yeah, we would use it to come to like get in touch with my mom. If we get, in, get a hold her. of her. Yeah. yeah, that, was the, yeah. that was my only contact with a pager. After that, cell phones became a thing. And um, yeah, yeah. It wasn't long. Uh, I think it was like maybe 97, 98 when I got a cell phone. So I, I think I had a pager for like two years, maybe. Mm-mm-mm. The good old days. So where are we? So the next person we're going to talk about is uh, Elizabeth Pena. She was 16 and was the firstborn child to Adolfo and Melissa Pena. Elizabeth's brother, Michael, was born two years later. Eight years after that, the family welcomed another little girl, Rachel. The family lived on a quiet suburban street about a half mile away from T.C. Jester Park. Elizabeth was a decent student, but she was more interested in socializing than in studying. She was very popular at school, and Melissa Pena described her daughter as a fun-loving, goofy, silly, sweet, and gentle kid. By the time she got to middle school, Elizabeth had gotten a little wild. Her parents argued with her about talking on the phone too much, coming home late, hanging out with the wrong crowd, typical teenage stuff. She snuck out of her window a couple of times to go hang out with friends, but, you know. I I never did that kind of thing. I snuck out once when I was a teenager. You didn't die, though, so it must have been great. I did not die, but it was horrible because the whole time I was just scared that my parents were going to find out 
And um, I was just so anxious about it that I didn't have any fun. And I never did it again. I did not. It was horrible. Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. Never did it again. Wow. Okay. Well, uh, uh, well, my fear was the reason why I never did it in the first place. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. So nothing too crazy, but her parents enrolled her in a private Catholic school. This made things even worse. And Elizabeth was kicked out of that school after six weeks. That devastated Elizabeth and she began reevaluating her life. She thought about the people that she'd been hanging out with and realized that she only had a few real friends. Really smart of her. I didn't figure that out until way later. (laughs) Very much so. (laughs) One of those friends was Jennifer Ertman. The two began spending more time together, the younger girl actually having a steadying influence on the older girl. Jennifer started doing well in school, obeyed her parents, and actually made more friends. The Peñas liked Jennifer. They thought she was a good kid, very polite. Isn't that great when your kid links up with like a really good influence? Like oh that. my yeah. God. It's priceless. That's the best. Um, yeah. Jennifer and Elizabeth attended Waltrip High School together. And by June of 1993, they had recently finished ninth grade. Okay, so now we're going to dive into the timeline. Hit it, Beth. So in January of 1993, we're not sure what day, but uh, in any case, in the beginning of January, uh, Patricia Lourdes Lopez, a 27-year-old gorgeous Latinx woman and mother of two, ran out of gas on the way home from a football game. She had to walk to a nearby convenience store to call somebody to help her. And as she was leaving, she was stopped by Peter Cantu, Joe Medellin, and Sean O'Brien. They asked her to buy them some beer, and in return, they would buy her some gas and take her back to her car. She bought the beer, but they did not take her back to her car. Instead, they took her back to a parking lot where they took turns raping her, and then they stabbed her to death. On January 4th, 1993, police found Patricia. Her body, nude from the waist down, was found with her blood-soaked clothing strewn about her. She'd been stabbed and slashed in the abdomen, throat, and back, and she'd been strangled. One source said that uh, she'd actually been disemboweled. Mm. Also found at the scene were empty beer cans, cigarettes, and a broken belt. Unfortunately, her death doesn't get uh, told about much. Her murder went unsolved and her estranged husband, Joe, was the main suspect. Much later, O'Brien's fingerprints were matched to one of the beer cans found at the murder scene and DNA found at the scene matched Medellin. Yeah, but that was much later. Right. And on June 24th, 1993... Uh, Jennifer Ertman's father drove her over to Elizabeth Pena's house, approximately four and a half miles away. Around 8 p.m., Elizabeth's mother drove the two girls over to their friend Gina's apartment complex to hang out. And by 10 p.m., they'd gone with a group of friends to another nearby apartment complex. Just a couple young gals enjoying their summer vacation. Yeah, hanging out with their friends. 
Yeah. Around the same time, Peter Cantu, 18, Sean O'Brien, 18, Joe Medellin, 18, were at TC Jester Park with five other teenagers. Efrain Perez, 17, twin brothers Roman and Frank Sandoval, 19. Raul Villarreal, 17, and Joe's little brother, Venacio, a.k.a. Uni, and he was only 14. Raul Villarreal was friends with Efrain Perez and not known to the rest of the group. Perez had told Villarreal that he was part of a gang called the Black and White Gang, and Villarreal was itching to join. In reality, it wasn't really a gang, just a group of kids that hung out together. Um, They called themselves sometimes the black and white gang, but it wasn't a serious gang. Okay. On the night of June 24th, they spent the evening drinking beer. By the way, what an interesting name to call your gang. Um, anyway, the black they, and white gang. Yeah. yeah. They spent the evening drinking beer. Villarreal was told that in order to join the gang, he had to fight uh, the other gang members in turn until he passed out. Uh, and that's common of gang initiation. Um, yeah, jumping, last, jumping in. Jumping in. And for women, um, it involves uh, being gang raped or having oh, to geez. fight as well. Um, oh, he, I did uh, not know that. Yes. Uh, so he lasted through three fights with Roman Sandoval, Joe Medellin, and then Sean O'Brien, each lasting five minutes long before briefly losing consciousness. Jesus. Following the fights, Peter Cantu declared that Raul was a badass and that he was in. The boys drank beer and hung out at some nearby railroad tracks. They talked about how they had to have each other's backs and respect each other, although they also needed to be able to take shit from the other members of the group. That was their form of male bonding, and I don't think that's unusual. I always think it's weird how How men (laughs) men put each other down. Yeah, yeah, yeah overreactions to yo mama jokes uh would get you kicked out oh my <laughs> um your mama's so fat <laughs> she, she, she sat on a rainbow and skittles popped out <laughs> <laughs> the one i always remember is when she sits around the house she sits around the house something like that i don't know <laughs> that's a good one um <laughs> Woo, take us back to the 90s. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, meanwhile, Elizabeth Pena and our, and uh, Jennifer Ertman were hanging out by the apartment swimming pool with their friends. Around 10.20, Elizabeth suggested to Jennifer that they should get ready to leave because they had to be home by 11. And at about 10.40, Elizabeth and Jennifer left after deciding to take a shortcut, a uh, fateful shortcut, through the park in order to get home faster. Yeah, they'd been kind of goofing around and were intending to leave, but uh, they didn't start going until 1040, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So they had to get home fast. Yeah. And about 1045 p.m., Frank Sandoval was overcome with a feeling that he needed to get out of there. He told his brother Roman that they should go, saying, quote, these guys have been drinking all fucking day. I don't trust them. Ramon begrudgingly agreed to go, and the two of them started to leave, heading down the railroad tracks. Every time I take a shortcut, this is why I don't do it anymore, bad things happen to me. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, maybe that's just a, a, a lesson um, for those listening, but don't take shortcuts. Um, so Joe, <laughs> Joe Medellin also decided to go and told his brother Uni that they needed to get home before their mother did. O'Brien left with them, walking with Medellin as Uni walked ahead. 
They headed in the same direction as the Sandovals, but at a slower pace. Jennifer and Elizabeth encountered Roman and Frank Sandoval as they made their way home, but they passed them without incident. The twins did not acknowledge them and also did not warn them that there were a bunch of guys who'd been drinking and fighting further on down the tracks. By the way, some of the details you have you have obtained, like... Um, I didn't see these anywhere. Like what they said, these guys have been drinking all fucking day. I don't trust them. Where did that come from? I read a book. (laughs) That's what took me so long. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So a lot of the information that I obtained for this uh, episode was from the book Pure Murder by Corey Mitchell. And it had a lot of detail about the the people involved's early lives and um, the things that happened. And um, is the book just about this case? Yes. Oh. It's entirely about this case. And they go into the early lives of some of the other murderers, too. But in the interest of keeping this episode as short as possible, which um, it's going to be a long one, but it uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was difficult to do. So I did not get into the early lives of some of the other killers. But um, if you want more information, it's a really good detailed book about this case. Shout out the name one more time. Pure Murder by Corey Mitchell. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Um, okay. Uni passed the girls without incident, but as Medellin and O'Brien passed, Medellin grabbed Elizabeth and dragged her down off the hill. Jennifer ran away, but when Elizabeth screamed, she ran back to try to help her friend. Cantu and O'Brien then grabbed her and dragged her down the hill as well. Roman and Frank Sandoval ran back to see what was happening, but decided to leave. They ended up walking home and did not call the police. Next, the older boys raped the two girls for about an hour Mm. while 14-year-old Uni Medellin watched, not knowing what to do. He kept going back and forth between his brother and Peter Cantu since they were the only ones that he really knew, and he kept trying to get them to leave. Oh, man. Imagine if they had listened. Yeah. He said he was told repeatedly by Peter Cantu to get some, so he joined in on raping Jennifer. The girls were still being raped when Cantu whispered to Uni, we're going to have to kill them. When everyone was finished, Cantu told the boys to take the girls into the woods. He told Uni to stay behind, saying he was, quote, too little to watch. The boys then began strangling the girls. Medellin and O'Brien wrapped O'Brien's red nylon belt around Jennifer's neck. They pulled on the belt, one boy on each side, until the belt broke. Mm. Um, I, I just throwing this out there. The whole so the idea of men bashing each other as like a form of like male bonding is weird. But what's also weird is gang rape culture. Like yeah. all those dudes like watching one dude like other people have, have, have sex, sex and then and waiting raping their turn. and yeah. yeah it's uh it's strange. it's bizarre yeah to me. i'm not here to kink shame it's just to me it's always been um kind of uh strange so anyway bizarre. Yes. yes after the belt broke the killers used jennifer's own shoelaces to finish the job joe medellin later complained that the bitch wouldn't die and that it would have been easier with a gun After the girls were strangled, Cantu kicked Pena in the face with his steel-toed boots, knocking out several of her teeth. Several of Ertman's ribs were broken from being kicked. All of the boys then took turns stomping on both girls' necks to make sure that they were dead. 
Finally, Cantu robbed Jennifer of her rings, necklaces, and cash. He gave Jennifer's goofy watch to Uni. How terrifying this experience—you know—experience must have been for these girls. Um, just yeah, uh, I, I can't. Oof, yeah, I can't I, this was a really hard case. Yeah, for, me. for sure. Yeah, I mean, these were these were kids. Um, yeah. And innocent girls, and just yeah, it's really unfortunate. Um, later that night, Perez Villarreal and Joe Medellin met at the house where Cantu lived with his parents, his older brother Joe, and Joe's wife, Christina Cantu. Christina, who was only 16, noticed that Villarreal was bleeding and that Perez had blood on his shirt and asked them what happened. The boys boasted about the rapes and killings. Medellin said that they, quote, had fun and that their activities would be seen on the TV news. Peter Cantu then walked in and readily agreed with the recollection of events. Joe Cantu watched the group divide the girls' small amount of cash and meager possessions and listened to them laugh and brag about the assaults. The conversation lasted nearly two hours. That's quite fucked up. Yeah. Disgusting. Yeah. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Maholovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. When Jennifer and Elizabeth didn't come home, the Ertman and Pena families began searching for them. The next morning, the girls' parents began to frantically look for them, paging them on their pagers, calling their friends to see if they knew where they are. The families filed missing persons reports with the Houston Police Department and continued to look for the girls on their own. The Ertmans and Penas gathered friends and neighbors to help them pass out flyers with the girls' pictures on them all over the Houston area, even giving them to newspaper vendors on the roadside. Okay, so that's it for the timeline, and now we're going to get into the to the investigation and arrest. So Christina Cantu was extremely disturbed about what the boys had said. Understandably so. She talked to her husband, Joe, about it and finally convinced him to call the police. He was reluctant to rat his brother out, but Christina told him that she felt sorry for the families and wanted them to be able to put their daughter's bodies to rest. She suggested that he call Houston Police Department's Crime Stoppers tip line anonymously. In the book, when uh, they talked about 
this happening. The the boys were just like really disrespectful to Christina as well. And um, she just didn't know what to do as they're talking about these crimes that he was, she was 16. Yeah. She didn't know what to do and she couldn't sleep after they left. Mm-hmm. She, she just was so disturbed about it. Mm. On June 27th, Joe Cantu placed an anonymous call to Crime Stoppers, identifying himself as Gonzalez. He told the call taker that the missing girl's body could be found near T.C. Jester Park at White Oak Bayou. The police were sent to the scene, but searched the park without finding anything. The police helicopter was flying over the park, prompting Mr. Gonzalez to, t- to make a 911 call, directing the search to move to the other side of the bayou. This led to the discovery of the girls' bodies, which were rapidly decomposing in the hot Houston summer air. The police traced the 911 call to Cantu's home. They questioned Joe Cantu, who identified himself as both the 911 caller and the Crime Stoppers tipster. He gave the police the names of all the perpetrators except for Villarreal, who he didn't know. All of the participants were then arrested. When he was arrested, Peter Cantu tried to kick a TV cameraman recording the event. While in custody, Cantu provided two written statements to the police. In the first statement, Cantu only admitted his role in raping and stealing from the girls, but he was silent as to their murder. After police informed Cantu that one of the other participants fully confessed, Cantu gave his second statement in which he described how both girls were killed. Some of the girls' jewelry was recovered from his bedroom. Sean O'Brien, Jose Medellin, and Venancio Medellin also gave confessions. The attackers at times seemed indifferent to the charges against them, maybe because they were so young. Um, O'Brien was videotaped smiling at the scene of the crime. Yeah, so he actually, when they were searching for the bodies, he went down to the the crime scene, and uh, there were reporters there, and he was videotaped standing around smiling. Mm-mm, uh, well, that's it for the investigation. Now we're going to dive into the trial. What do you got, Beth? On September 23rd, 1993, Cantu was indicted for capital murder by a Harris County grand jury. And on February 3rd, 1994, Cantu was found guilty of capital murder and he was sentenced to death on February 9th. Did you know one out of six couples struggle with infertility, including old Whitey and me? Seriously, that is a staggering statistic yeah. that most people don't know or aren't ready to talk about. We need good data and information about our bodies in order to have informed conversations with our doctors and make the best decisions for ourselves and our futures. Good data and information about our bodies is crucial when it comes to our body autonomies, especially in the year of our Lord 2022. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's why Modern Fertility was created. It's an easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick. Mail it in with a prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within 10 days. Traditional testing can cost over $1,000, but Modern Fertility gets you the same info at a fraction of the price. And if you go to modernfertility.com fruit, you can get $20 off your test. Also, and this is really cool, mm. if you have an HSA or an FSA, you can put those dollars towards Modern Fertility. Wow! 
Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Now, if you want kids today or in the future, never or are undecided, it's important to have clinically sound information about your body, which can help you make the decision that's right for you. Right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com fruit. That means your test will cost $179 instead of the hundreds or thousands it could cost at a doctor's office. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com fruit. That's modernfertility.com fruit. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. How we care for our minds affects how we experience life, so it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. There are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain, like learning a new language or taking power naps, but there's also BetterHelp Online Therapy. Now, we are huge advocates for mental health here at Fruit oh, yeah. HQ. Oh, yes. And we have both used therapy throughout our lives, including BetterHelp, and especially in these past several years to help us deal with challenging times, mm-hmm. challenging thoughts, feelings and experiences. Amen. Yes. And uh, now I had a recent, you know, conversation with my therapist. She was saying sometimes it's just good to talk and get some perspective. You don't yeah. have to go to a therapist just because stuff is wrong. So Right, right. And BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat only therapy sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And some people get really anxious about that. So Oh, yes. And it is much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash fruit. That's betterhelp.com slash fruit. Cantu showed little emotion at his conviction and death sentence and had no reaction when Randy Ertman, Jennifer's father, was allowed to make a victim impact statement at the end of the trial. At his sentencing, the judge asked Cantu if there were, was any reason the sentence should be imposed. Nah, Cantu replied. Famous, famous words. Nah. Famous last words. Nah. <laughs> nah. 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 <laughs> Jesus. Oh, God. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals affirmed the conviction and sentence in January of 1997. All of his subsequent appeals in state and federal court were denied. Sean O'Brien, Raul Valerial, Efrain Perez, and Joe Medellin were also charged with capital murder following their arrest. I'm surprised they didn't like take a plea deal and um, went through with the trial after they had confessed. Um, because yeah. what a waste of resources. And also, all, these crimes would have just made a jury so mad, like totally yeah. inflamed yeah. them hearing these details. Like, there's no way you guys are going to get out of this. Um, yeah, I don't know why they didn't. Yeah. Or maybe they were not offered a plea deal. Maybe, maybe. Um, after the trials of Peter Cantu in January and Sean O'Brien in March 1994, guilty, uh, a decision was made to try the remaining three defendants concurrently to save time and money. The three trials held in separate courtrooms before separate judges and juries all started at various times on Monday, September 12, 1994. Separate juries found Perez, Villarreal, and Medellin guilty of capital murder and sentenced them to death for the girls' rapes and murders. There was intense media coverage surrounding all three trials, and during jury selection, more than 150 of about 180 potential jurors who were questioned had heard of the case. So now we're going to get into where are they now? Well, let me tell you. Uh, Derek Sean O'Brien was executed in July of 2006, and Joe Medellin was executed on uh, in August of 2008. 
uh, both expressed regret for their role in the killings, and the victims' families were present for the executions. Death row rules were actually changed to allow families to watch executions because of this case. Cantu was executed on August 10th, 2010. And because everybody's always interested about last meals, I um, I got that information for you. Unfortunately, Sean O'Brien and Joe Midian did not uh, have special meals. So Peter Cantu's last meal was enchiladas, fajitas, and a cinnamon bun. I think that sounds wonderful. Sounds pretty good. Yeah. Very delicious. I, w- I wonder what he had to drink, like if there was any horchata. Um, yeah, I don't like know. A- Did not mention that. Yeah. <laughs> Cantu declined requests for interviews prior to his execution. The parents of Ertman and Pena attended, supported by other family members and friends. Cantu did not acknowledge the victim's families, and he had no personal witnesses attending the execution. Not even so his, his, his mom, nobody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he and I was wondering, like, if his, like, what the streets think of Cantu's brother for being the nine one one caller and the tipster. Like, if they're like, "Ah, you stupid snitch," or if he's like yeah. well respected for doing the right thing. Anyway, yeah, I don't know. Just a thought I had. Uh, he he did not look toward the witnesses and made no last statement. When the lethal injection was started, Cantu stared straight up toward the ceiling, taking one deep breath before he closed his eyes. He was pronounced dead at six seventeen p.m. Cantu was the sixteenth person to be put to death by the state of Texas in two thousand ten. He was thirty five. Afterwards, Adolfo Pena, Elizabeth's father, said, "Quote: Put it this way." I wish my daughter could have died the way that he died today. Wasn't no pain. These girls went through an awful lot of pain when they died. He deserved to die. And 17 years later, he died. Not soon enough. Mm. I can understand why he would feel that way and say those words. Um, I can too. I saw on YouTube um, a, a YouTube video of people like barbecuing and playing music outside of one of the executions. And I don't know if it was Cantu's or not, but uh, with the family, the, the family's there, like sort of celebrating um, this day as a symbol of like closure, which I thought was right. interesting. Raul Villarreal and Efraim Perez were sentenced to death, but following a U.S. Supreme Court's 2005 ruling that executing criminals who were not yet 18 at the time of their crimes is unconstitutional, their sentences were commuted to life. Venancio Uni Medellin, who was only 14 at the time and did not participate in the murders, was convicted of aggravated sexual assault and sentenced to 40 years in prison. So he'll get out eventually. Yeah, that seems like a lot, though. It was probably because of how horrendous the crimes were. But uh, he was only 14. Um, I don't think he really wanted to be there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. and he did not participate in the murder. So that seems like a lot. It does. But he's also a brown young man. Yes. And good point. The, yeah. The, there's this, uh, we've talked about this before, adultization of um, black and brown children and yeah. uh, how society views them as older um, uh, and that bad things that happen to them are uh, more um their fault and their responsibility just because of how they present and their skin color. Right. Good point. Good point. 
In the years since Adolfo and Melissa Pena have become grandparents, they said that they were saved by their other two children who gave them a reason to wake each morning, although their son Michael remains bitter. For years, Randy Ertman sought escape through alcohol, but got sober for the sake of his wife, Sandy. Randy Ertman advocated rigorously for victims in Texas until his death due to cancer. The murders of Elizabeth Pena and Jennifer Ertman affected Houston deeply. A memorial was erected to them at Waltrip High School, which they attended, and a memorial for them was placed at T.C. Jester Park. Right. That was where the crimes took place. Uh, through right. the work of Houston crime victims advocate Andy Cahan, the case led to statewide policy changes giving crime victims and their families more of a voice in the criminal justice process. A Houston police officer who worked on the murder case described the murder as part of the impetus for the anti-gang programs in Houston. Well, don't know how I feel about that. But uh, now we're going to get into what made the killers snap and our takeaways from the story. So looks like you've got a juicy one, Beth. Hit it. <laughs> Cantu, O'Brien, and Medellin all had some difficulties when they were growing up. Cantu had trouble with speech, and he was teased as a child. O'Brien's father and mother abandoned him, and Medellin was brought to the U.S. as a child, which alone is traumatizing. Mm -hmm. um, and I couldn't help but notice that all three had very young parents. Their mothers were teenagers when they were born. Joe's mm. was only 15. Wow. So they were kids having kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, when a child becomes a parent, they, they don't know what the hell they're doing. I mean, when you're an adult, you barely know what the hell you're doing. So right. I think these guys were at a disadvantage from the beginning. It, it mm -hmm. doesn't excuse them, sure. but it's just something that I noticed. It's an explanation. Yes, an explanation. They got out of control when they became teenagers and their parents really didn't know what to do with them. I saw in multiple places that the parents couldn't control them. The parents probably had little support and had no idea what to do. Mm -hmm. And the justice system apparently didn't know what to do with them either. And I was surprised to see how much trouble they got into. And the justice system basically did nothing. I don't know the answer as to what they should have been doing. Um, but if someone had intervened early on in their lives when they started to have trouble, maybe this story would have been different. And when I'm talking about the justice system, I'm not saying that they should have been in jail. I'm saying that, you know, had there been some kind of diversion program or, or something like that mm -hmm. uh, earlier on in their lives, maybe maybe things would have been different. Mm -hmm. I also don't know if uh, these boys would have done these crimes on on their own, or if being in the group gave them the courage to commit the crimes and, and think it's okay, they were egging each other on. And I, I'm pretty sure that Uni Medellin would not have been involved in this crime had he not been egged on. Yeah, I agree. And I think you bring up a really interesting point about how the justice system apparently didn't know what to do with them. But the justice right. system certainly acts very swiftly when... Um, black and brown or poor kids commit serious crimes. Um, and there's all this lead up to, to, to these serious crimes in their lives. Um, and had, I agree, had there been some sort of diversion program, they would not have ended up in the position that they were in. And maybe these two girls would still be alive to this still day. Still be alive. Yeah. 
Yeah. And and maybe these these kids, these boys would be leaving productive lives. I don't know. Right. Yeah. But what I'm getting at is uh, the justice system knows exactly what to do when um, these uh, these type of individuals commit really serious crimes, but is totally yeah, when it gets to this point where they're then, committing rapes and murders right, then they right. they throw them in jail and kill them. Yes. But so when, yeah. when the signs are there to prevent this type then they of don't act. know what to do. They have yeah. no clue. Yeah. Right. And I, I really think that um, we talk about these these kinds of things all the time and, and uh, just reading these stories and getting in, involved in, I mean, just going deeply into these stories, I can mm-hmm. see a pattern that a lot of these perpetrators, had there been intervention earlier on in their lives, support something mm-hmm. uh, to help the parents, to help the, the kids, mm-hmm. um, then these stories would probably be different. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, someday there, there will be no more true crime genre. Like we'll have figured this all out and true crime will be like a a topic like dinosaurs. Right. And right. Right. Like like maybe coronavirus is what (laughs) needs to happen in order for these all these problems with education, criminal justice, poverty, um, experiencing homelessness, all these things can just get fixed because there's no other choice. Yeah, I, I really think that's key to um, preventing these kinds of crimes. Agreed. You know what? Great minds do think alike. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I think the girls were in in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, this was a random and very disorganized crime. Um, this gang yeah. of boys were wilding out, that wilding, as they say in the streets, just um, jump someone into a gang. There was alcohol invi- involved and the opportunity presented it, itself to them. Plus, Cantu and Orion had done this before. Um, and, and Medellin and as Medellin. well. All three I, of them. Yeah, it was the three of them. Yeah, and that and, technically makes them serial killers. Yes, which fits the Fruit Loops bill. Um, yeah. Uh, you're welcome, everybody, because this was, we were we were thinking we were going to do this one and it was like a little bit outside of the norm for what we covered, but Lord and behold. It turns out. It, it turns, turns out. out. It's, sh- it falls right the in. Fits. And it's interesting because there were three of them all together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't think I've seen another case like it. I'm going to have to say I agree with you. Yeah, you're right. I have not. Um, but they all seem to have had um, difficult um, childhoods. Um, I, I can imagine there's some PTSD involved in each and every one of their lives. Um, uh, Some of them had child abuse, mental illness, abandonment. Um, None of those things are um, ideal, um, especially with a lack of support. Um, Cantu had disciplinary issues. And it seemed to me from my research that the system did try to step in um, where it could, like, he would get um, disciplined at school for like beating up a teacher or something. And then they would um, tell his mom and then he'd go to another school where they'd try to um, like um, harness him. And it just, nothing worked. Like nothing, nothing worked. Yeah. Um, This is a really sad 
um, horrific story. Agreed. And uh, the number these boys did to three women and their families and friends is immeasurable. And I Mm -hmm. feel really, really angry also that Patricia Lopez's case has sort of become an afterthought um, because her story deserves to be told in conjunction with this entire case. Um, And there's little snippets about her. So that makes me sad. Yeah, we couldn't find much information about her at all, like personally, about her personal mm-hmm. life. Yeah. Very little information out there about I her, even which find made her me sad. Obituary. Yeah. Right. Right. going to dive into how not to get murdered. So <clears throat> if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> Bam. This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what to do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. So, so since this story was about uh, three women who were out at night walking alone, I thought I would uh, give some tips about how to stay safe at night while walking alone. So here we go. Walk with purpose and don't stop. Invest in a way that you could call for help if you needed to, like personal alarms, whistles, stuff like that. Carry pepper spray. Uh, one, One tip I saw was to carry something in your hand, like a bag with something heavy in it to swing around. Mm-hmm. So if somebody comes near you, you can whack them. I was thinking <laughs> they That's didn't suggest this, but I, <laughs> I was thinking a brick in a bag, <laughs> something like that, or a rock Ooh. or, you know, there's a, a mer- ball. There's a merch idea. <laughs> yeah. Hey, there you go. <laughs> a grocery bag with a rock. Set it up. It'll be $5, please. Yeah. (laughs) Coming soon to a Fruit Loops merch store near you. (laughs) If all you have is your keys with you, push one key in between each of your fingers on one hand and make a fist with it so you could uh, swing out, uh, punch somebody with it if you need to. Mm. Stay in well-lit areas and steer clear from dark places like alleyways. If you see you're going to be passing an alleyway on the sidewalk up ahead, for example, give the alleyway entrance a wide berth by moving from the sidewalk out into the street. Um, But of course, watch for traffic so you don't get hit by a car. Mm -hmm. Yes, 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 yes. (laughs) And as always, trust your gut. Great tips. Thank you, Beth. Um, now we are going to move towards, we're going to slide into the shout out portion of our show. That's right. It's a quiet storm. Shout out to any content by people of color. <laughs> it's a quiet or, shout out. Yes, it's a quiet <laughs> shout out by people of color, about people of color, or any true crime goodies. What do you sexy people out there want to know about? I'll tell you. Uh, 
<laughs> now I'll get normal. Uh, so the Innocence Files is on Netflix. It is a docu series about the work that the Innocence Project does to get innocent people out of jail and exposes the complete and utter failures failures of the police justice system, courts, judges, prosecutors, prisons, all of it. It's fantastic. Wow. Okay. Cool. What do you got? Um, I wanted to shout out Unorthodox on Netflix. The series is loosely based on Deborah Feldman's 2012 autobiography that's called Unorthodox, The Scandalous Rejection of My Hasidic Roots. And I also downloaded the Audible book. So, Oh, right on. Yeah. It's the first Netflix series to be primarily in Yiddish, although they do speak English and German, too. It's the story of Esti, a girl who grew up as an Orthodox Jew in the Hasidic neighborhood of Williamsburg, New York City. And I found the Hasidic culture fascinating. I love culture stuff. So, uh-huh. <laughs> and yeah. they don't always explain everything that's going on, like all the the reasons behind the things that they do in their traditional culture. Mm-hmm. So while I was watching, I was like pausing it and Googling things, <laughs> 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 which is why I finally downloaded the audiobook because I wanted to know more. Mm. Anyway, um, the, it's really well done. It's a good story and it's beautiful. I agree. I, I started it the other day and um, uh, really into good. it. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Um, so uh, where can the people find us, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod, And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash app. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash app, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And soon, at the $5 level, we're going to be doing a Zoom meeting, so join in on the fun. Mm-hmm. Can't wait to see you there. Yeah. And as always, you can get your Fruit Loops merch on our website. That's right, everybody. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, guys. It's crazy out there. detective came and knocked on the door and I said is it Renee and he just gave me that solemn look it was the worst day ever the proof podcast is back with a new case and a new season 23 years ago 18 year old Renee Ramos went missing her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town 
I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.